The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, continuing this incredible journey through the gospel of Mark, looking at the text that you just heard read by Dave. From the beginning of church history, Christians have had an uneasy and challenging relationship with secular government. It was Caesar's governor, Pontius Pilate, who ordered the crucifixion of our Lord. And it was Roman soldiers that nailed Jesus to the cross. But the awestruck Roman centurion who carried out Pilate's orders gave this stunning statement about Jesus as he died. Mark 15, 39. Surely this man was the Son of God. Soon afterward, it was a godly Roman centurion, Cornelius, who began the great ingathering of Gentile converts to Christ by his repentance and faith in Christ, preached by the Apostle Peter. The greatest apostle of them all, Paul, was both a Christian and a Roman citizen. And Paul frequently claimed the benefits of Roman citizenship and used the the advantages of the Roman Empire, the transportation system, the commerce of the Roman Empire to spread the gospel. Yet, in the end, it was the Roman Caesar Nero that ordered Paul's execution. The New Testament constantly commands willing submission to the government. Yet it was the government that savagely persecuted Christians and murdered Christians for the first three centuries of church history. Then the emperor Constantine declared himself to be a Christian in the year 312, But that declaration eventually brought a wedding of church and state that it's not hard to argue is nearly ruinous for the church of Jesus Christ, for the health of the church, and required a massive reformation of the church 12 centuries later. In many nations around the world, it is the government that is the bitterest enemy of the gospel, hunting down godly Christians and their pastors, incarcerating them, persecuting them, even killing them. And yet, in America, there has been for well over 200 years a mostly comfortable relationship between Christianity and secular government, and many godly Christians have had a massive influence in the governmental life of our nation over that history. Because of that, some have even gone so far as to call America a Christian nation because of the pervasive influence of Christianity on our nation's government and history. However, recently, this comfortable relationship between the genuine Christian church and secular government has begun to decay. It's become clear that our surrounding culture is increasingly hostile to Christianity, And therefore, many elected officials that represent those people are bolder and more aggressive in speaking slanderous, even blasphemous words against Christ 
Many recent policies are directly contrary to biblical truth and put Christians consistently in a difficult place, in a bind in the workplace. So the question stands before us as it has for ages. How exactly should a Christian relate to government? Now, in our text today, Jesus finds a way to elude a trap that's set for him and begins a significant answer to this deeply divisive issue with the principle that you just heard read. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, in that one statement, we're not going to find a comprehensive answer to the problem of the relationship between uh, Christians and government but we're going to take a significant step forward in understanding how Jesus saw both sides of that equation. So we see here in this text an attack plotted and executed by Jesus' enemies. Look at verse 13. Later they, his enemies, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. It is the final week of Jesus' life, so we're in Mark's gospel, and there's just one conflict after another leading up eventually to his condemnation and his execution on the cross. And we saw last uh, two weeks ago the parable of the wicked tenant farmers that refused to give the owner his due, and that, that parable that Jesus walked through, culminating in the text that I preached on last week, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this in his marvelous in our eyes, we talked about the builders being the leaders of the nation, the movers and shakers, the, the governing officials there of the Jewish nation. In verse 12, it says, they, they these enemies, looked for a way to arrest him but they, because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. But their hatred for Jesus burned hotter than ever before. But their fears of the crowd and of the Romans and losing their position with the Romans was boxing them in. So they had to become sly and plot some devious way to trap Jesus so that they could get him killed, which is what they wanted. So they plotted against him. In Matthew's account, Matthew twenty-two fifteen, 15, it says the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They took counsel together. They made some kind of devious plot here. Now, as you think about it, there'd be two ways of killing Jesus, getting rid of him. They could do it directly themselves by force, or they could do it by law, by legal means. Now, if they wanted to dispense with Jesus by legal means, by law, they had a problem. Because he had to be made a criminal in the eyes of Rome. The uh, the Romans would not allow the Jews to execute anyone. They had no authority to put a man to death. Now, the Romans, for their part, had no interest in Jewish religious controversies at all. So Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, while blasphemous to the Jewish leaders, would have meant nothing to the Romans. They wouldn't have given it the time of day. So Jesus had to be made a criminal in the eyes of the state, in the eyes of Rome. Now, if Jesus was espousing rebellion against Roman rule, now that would be something. And, and saying in general, somebody who is so popular with the people, we need to stop paying taxes to Caesar, that would have been of intense interest to the Romans. Hence the question about taxation. Now, on the other hand, if the Jewish, if Jesus' Jewish enemies had wanted to just kill him directly, just 
rise up against him and kill him. The problem there was the people. The people loved Jesus for the most part. They held that he was a prophet, at least. A number of times, Jesus' enemies wanted to seize Jesus, but even in the text we have here, they want to arrest him, want to lay hands on him, but they held back by their fear of the people. So they have to strip his protection away. The Jewish people have to turn on Jesus. Somehow they have to manipulate, the, Jesus' enemies manipulate the crowd so that they turn on Jesus and hate him. Now, if Jesus espoused that they should pay taxes to Caesar, that would do it for a lot of them. The patriotic Jews among them, not just the zealots, but just general rank-and-file Jews would be deeply offended by this open teaching of submission to Rome and paying taxes to Caesar and all that. Hence, I hope you can see the dark genius of this plot laid. They, they have him, they think, either way. Now, springing this trap, bringing this trap are some strange bedfellows here, Pharisees and the Herodians. Matthew twenty two sixteen. 16, the Pharisees sent their disciples, so some young, zealous Pharisees are sent, dispatched, along with the Herodians. The eyebrows really should go up if you realize who these people are. The Pharisees in the one part are Jesus' most vocal and consistent enemies, vehement. They're known for their passionate commitment to the laws of Moses and their belief that obedience to the laws of Moses was the means by which they could earn their salvation, favor with God, and they thought they did keep the laws of Moses. Now, along with this, of course, with their fierce commitment to their Jewish heritage, they hated the Roman occupation, the Roman legions. Some Pharisees were even zealots who were secretly plotting rebellion against Rome, wanted to overthrow the Romans. They would have adamantly, passionately rejected the Messiah teaching that we need to pay taxes to Caesar. They would have hated that, Pharisees. Now, the Herodians, on the other hand, are disciples or followers of King Herod, who was a puppet king of the Romans. He, he derived his power from Roman rule. That's how he was in power. And all the taxes that were gathered, some of them went to Herod and to the Herodians. They actually benefited from the uh, taxes paid to Rome. How in the world do these people get together? Ordinarily, they would have hated each other. But there's an old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And we see this. You see it in military, like World War II. How did the UK and the United States get together with the wicked Soviet Union tyrant Joseph Stalin? They had nothing in common in terms of government, but they had a common enemy, Hitler and the Nazis, so we see this kind of thing. These two groups who are normally enemies, they get together. They represent opposite sides of the question on taxation, but they're both committed to one thing, and that's getting rid of Jesus. They hated Jesus, so they wanted to do that. So this is a sinister, a dark, a devious trap that Jesus is encircled with here. And they bring it with some flattery. They mix in some flattery here. Look at verse 14. They come to him and they say, "'Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men.'" because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Ugh, should make you feel sick as you read that. You realize who it's coming from. Now, flattery is very different than encouragement. 
all right? I hope, you, I hope you realize that. It's good to encourage other people. It's bad to flatter them. What's the difference? Well, the difference is your motive and whether you believe what you're saying or not. Flattery is insincere praise given for selfish reasons. Years ago, I was reading the Aesop's fables, and I came across uh, one of the fables, the fox and the crow. It's a fun story. A wily fox sees an ugly crow sitting up on a branch up high with a coveted piece of cheese in its beak. And uh, the fox looks up and persuades the crow that it has the most beautiful singing voice of any bird in the forest and that he would love to hear a single song from its golden throat. Filled with pride, the crow opens its beak and begins to squawk its nasty little song while the precious piece of cheese falls to the ground right into the open mouth of the fox. Moral of the story, don't trust flatterers. The book of Proverbs says the same thing, Proverbs 29.5. Whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. That's exactly what Jesus' enemies are doing here. They're flattering him and spreading a net for his feet. Now, the thing is, the words they used are actually true. And for us as believers in Christ, we could walk through them and worship Jesus for these things. But they didn't believe them, well, for the most part. First of all, Jesus was, in fact, a man of integrity. Never has there ever been a man so much a man of integrity, a man absolutely committed to the truth, willing to die for the truth, and exactly what he appeared to be. There's no deception, no corruption. He wasn't just true. He was truth incarnate. He didn't say, I am the way and I teach the truth. He said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. He is truth incarnate. That's who he was. But they didn't believe this. They actually believed that he was a deceiver teaching false doctrines. Jesus actually did teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. He perfectly spoke the words of his heavenly Father. No one has ever taught more pure and perfect doctrine than Jesus He did teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. But again, they didn't believe this. They believed he was a heretic, a false teacher. Now, the the next statement they make, we know that you aren't swayed by men since you pay no attention to who they are, but you just say your convictions no matter who you're talking to. Now, they actually did believe that, and it actually was true. Jesus wasn't concerned at all with the person he was talking to in terms of any fear he would have. He wasn't afraid of Pontius Pilate. He wasn't afraid of Annas. He wasn't afraid of crowds. He wasn't afraid of anybody, ever. He taught what he believed. He didn't look at at the individual's face. That's literally the expression. He wasn't moved by the face, the appearance, uh, the position. It didn't intimidate him at all. Uh, Nowadays, politicians are constantly governing by opinion polls. You know, they stick their finger in the wind and try to find out the prevailing, you know, opinion, and then they'll make their judgments based on that. Jesus never did that. He had zero fear. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the judge of all the earth, and he knew it. No fear. Now, as I said, Jesus' enemies actually did believe this about him, and they were counting on it. You understand they're counting on Jesus just saying what he thinks here. And so they are wanting to trap him in his words. And so they come, the trap sprung, it says, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Either way, they were stuck. He was stuck, so they thought. Jesus says, no, 
we should not pay taxes to Caesar, how long do you think it would have taken them to go tell Pontius Pilate? I mean, it would have been later that hour he would have heard about it. But if, on the other hand, he says we should pay taxes to Caesar, he's surrounded right there in the temple area by hundreds of people that are listening to every word he says. We would have lost a lot of those patriotic Jews right there and then. So either way, it was a trap designed to get Jesus killed. Now, Jesus begins by exposing their hypocrisy. Look at verse 15. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? Now, it's one thing to have an instinct about hypocrisy or an instinct about flattery. It's another thing to actually know the motives of another human being's heart. And Jesus is omniscient. John chapter 2 says Jesus doesn't need any testimony about a man because he knows what's in a man. He knows what's inside someone's heart. Like Nathaniel, he knew that he was a man of integrity and, and, and he was a true Israelite. How do you know that? I saw you while you were under the fig tree, John chapter 1. Jesus knows people. He knows their hearts because he's omniscient. And so he understands what they're trying to do and he evades their trap. Now, how in the world is he going to get out of this one? Well, you've already read the text, so you know how he gets out of it. But it's really quite remarkable. First of all, fundamental of this whole exchange is they do not understand who he is. They don't understand what they're dealing with. You know, I like, like most of you do, I like the amazing person incognito kind of story. I mean, you guys like that? I mean, the Kyrie Irving, Uncle Drew thing? You know, I mean, there are a lot of athletes that do this. Eli Manning dressed up, Chris Bryant, Greg Maddox. Oh, you don't know who he is. It's like, man, this dude's got a good curveball. That yeah, was Greg Maddox. What did you think? But you didn't know. He thought he was the sound guy. I like those things. Uh, or Joshua Bell, the violinist, just incognito there with his Stradivarius in a, in a D.C. subway kiosk, playing some amazing pieces. People just walk by and don't even care. That's Joshua Bell right there. Or, you know, there's some of these CEO incognito stories, like there's shows about this where you don't know you're dealing with the CEO of the whole company, and you find out later who you're dealing with. Well, Jesus, Isaiah 53 says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected. So they underestimated him. They thought, hey, we're going to trap him. We're going to kind of triangulate it and trap him. They're crossing swords, however, with the mind that created the universe. They're playing chess with the infinite God of the universe. You're not going to trick him. You're not going to trap him. Jesus' death could never be an accident, could never be a trap or a trick. He will say in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. You're not going to trap me. You're not going to trick me into dying here. I'm going to die because I want to die. Furthermore, he wanted to teach these principles. He wanted to teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. He wanted to talk about taxation. He's not shrinking back from it. And so he uses an object lesson. Look at verse 15. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought it. So they bring in this coin, and he's holding it. You can picture him holding up the coin. And then he says, whose portrait is this? Points to the coin. And whose inscription? 
Now, the coin itself would have been odious to any Jewish, religious Jewish person. It would have had an image of Tiberius Caesar proclaiming him to be God. On the obverse, it would have had a picture of Tiberius Caesar in priestly robes like he was some kind of a high priest. It would have been extremely offensive, a violation of a law against idolatry. Anyway, Jesus' enemies are happy to produce the coin. They think he's about to, to put his head in his own noose with his own words. Whose portrait is this? Caesar's, they answer. Then he gives his answer. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now, Jesus changed the word the Jews used. They asked his lawful to give the tax to Caesar, as if it were something that didn't really belong to Caesar, but if you were going to give it to him. But he changes the word in the Greek, it's give back, it's, it's render, you know, with a sense of give what is truly owed to that individual. That's the, the word. So he actually changes the word. And the word render, in this case, a little awkward for us, not a word we would use commonly, and therefore I think it's good to think of it that way. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar means give back to him what is really his. That's the whole point of the object lessons. Do you see it? If you mint the coin, you're in charge. You run the country. And therefore, you have that authority. Give it back to him. It belongs to him. That's what Jesus is saying. But he doesn't stop there. He says, render to God the things that are God's. Now, it's amazing on the first half, render to Caesar. Jesus is vigorously, clearly, no doubt about it, upholding the very government that very soon will execute him. And he knows it. And yet there he is, upholding the authority of this idolatrous, pagan government and the right they have to receive taxes. He upholds it. But that second statement, render to God the things that are God's, we'll spend eternity understanding it and doing it. Now, Jesus' rea the reaction to this is um, they're astonished when they heard it. They were amazed, Matthew twenty two twenty two. So they left him and went away. I would think bad move. Be astonished and fall on your face and worship him. How about that? So they're impressed, they're amazed, probably a little frustrated. They're not going to be able to do anything with that statement. And they walk away. Instead, they should have loved him and worshipped him and believed in him. All right, let's go back and try to understand this. What must we render to Caesar? And what must we render to God? How do we understand that? First of all, taxes. I know, I know. But I'm not going to be up here saying you don't need to pay your taxes. You do need to pay your taxes. Jesus says so. And so, yeah, we need to pay taxes. And the reason is you are supporting, you're paying the salaries of God's servants who are governing in the language of Romans 13, the authorities that exist have been established by God. God set them up. Of course, the Son of God is going to uphold them. Daniel 4.17 says, The Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. That's Nebuchadnezzar's statement. It's absolutely true. 
Okay? So that means that Caesar's power, Rome's power, came from God. It's not an accident. Furthermore, and this would have really stung for patriotic Jews, Caesar's power is just in a line of Gentile overlords that were there as a direct judgment on the Jews for not keeping the law of Moses. That's why they had control of the promised land. It's the very thing that Moses, that God had said through Moses in Deuteronomy he would do. They're getting the promised land on condition of their obedience to the laws of of God, the laws of Moses. It's the condition. And if they do not keep his laws, he is going to use Gentile armies to evict them. It's in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 30, 32. It's a clear prediction that that's what he's going to do. He's going to make them jealous, he said, by people, that, those that are not a people. It's a very clear statement. He's predicted ahead of time what, what they're going to do. So this is not an accident. It's not something they didn't know. From the Babylonian exile through the Medo-Persians, through the Greeks, and now the Romans, series of Gentile overlords that were direct judgments by God on the Jews for violating the laws of God. He specifically judged Jews who refused to submit to the Gentiles. Read about it in Ezekiel 17. He's very angry with them that they're not submitting to Babylon. Ezekiel 17. Very surprising. I mean, do you think those things were taught much among the zealots and among the Pharisees? And all? I don't think those themes were, were lifted up much, but it was clearly true. Jesus called it the times of the Gentiles. Ezra knew it when, when a, a small remnant of Jews came back from the exile of Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple and all that. Ezra said these things. He said, because, Ezra 9, 7 through 9, because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. That's it. That's why this is happening. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in a sanctuary, and so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia, allowing us to return and rebuild the city and the temple. That's what he's saying. So he understood it, Ezra. The patriotic Jews, the zealots who wanted to rebel against Rome were forgetting the sins of their fathers and God's just judgment against them. In addition, they were forgetting the benefits, the benefits of wise Roman government. And there were many. The Roman conquest of the Mediterranean world brought with it tremendous advantages in unification. Uh, They united that part of the world in something called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. This meant that as long as a conquered country accepted the Roman yoke, accepted Roman rule, they pretty much could live out their whole lives in peace free from warfare. So that's, that's a big advantage back then. You're not going to have raiders coming in and taking your crops. Uh, the Romans were excellent at long-term stability. They used local leaders and regional kings to keep the peace. They allowed freedom of religion within a, uh, within a certain measure and guaranteed a semblance of justice for the people. They established commerce, uh, roads, uh, economic system, where you could. some people became pretty prosperous in that system. 
As with any reasonable government, they protected its people from rampant crime, from anarchy, from armed mobs roaming the streets. They brought stability and order and daily peace to life. And so it is today, the benefits of government today. Romans 13.4 says, the ruler is God's servant to do you good. Two verses later, Romans 13.6, this is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to government, governing. And because they give their full time, they need to be paid. That's their salary. So it's right to pay taxes. So God's servants in government do you good. They promote peace and public order. They establish and uphold a system of justice. They punish evildoers. They protect people from military threats. They promote health and prosperity by roads, infrastructure, common economy, all of these things. Many benefits. By contrast, I think the worst possible situation there could be, I've thought about this, it's debatable whether it's... uh, tyrannical dictatorship or anarchy, but I think anarchy is worse. Anarchy is worse because it's not like there aren't going to be any people trying to control that situation. You look at, for example, the reign of terror during the French Revolution, or you look at Somalia, for example, from 1991 to 2006, there was no permanent government in Somalia. It was just anarchy. Well, what would it have been like to live in Somalia in 2000? You couldn't go out of your home, really. There's just roving bands of of gun-wielding young men that gun you down, steal things from you. It was horrible. And there are all kinds of markers of what life was like in Somalia in terms of infant mortality, in terms of disease, in terms of education, literacy, adult literacy rates. All of it plummeted. It was horrible. So, But we owe to government more than just the payment of taxes. The Scripture says there's other things. We owe honor We owe honor to governing officials. 1 Peter 2.17, show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. There's a certain respect that goes to governing officials. We owe obedience as far as we're able. Romans 13.1, it says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, in our government system, we also, I think, owe wise participation. We're able to take advantage of being, uh, for those of us that are, American citizens who are able to participate in government, able to vote out uh, officials that we think have uh, their policies we disagree with. We're able to debate them, uh, raise up questions, concerns, etc. Uh, you look at the way Paul behaved nine times in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is referred to as a citizen of Rome. He had that Roman citizenship card in his back pocket And he's going to pull it out at some key moments, like one time when they were stretching him out to beat him. And he says, is it lawful for you to beat a Roman citizen who hasn't even been condemned? And the Roman guard at that point pulled back and said, whoa, 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 what are we doing here? So Paul would use that Roman citizenship thing. I think Paul by then had decided he had had enough beatings to store up treasure in heaven. He didn't need any more. So like, well, let's put an end to this right now. But it was the Roman the Roman citizenship. And it was his appealing to Caesar, which was his right to do as a Roman citizen, that enabled him to go to Rome and preach the gospel uh, to Caesar. For us, it's a matter of voting, participation, jury duty. Also, many godly Christians, as I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon, actively participate as elected officials or participate with government, federal, state, and local officials. And throughout history, Christians have used their convictions to be salt and light in those settings, very much like Daniel in Babylon, 
where he was the third highest ruler in the kingdom. He's able to do that. What else do we owe to government? We owe prayer. We need to pray for governing officials. First Timothy 2, 1 and 2, he says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So pray those things. Go to 1 Timothy 2. I'll tell you what, whenever some elected official, from the president on down, even to local government, does something that really irritates you, I would say first and foremost, go to 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Read the text and then pray for them. Pray for them. Paul goes on in the next two verses to say, we imply we should be praying for their salvation. Praying for their salvation. 1 Peter 2, 3 and 4. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Friends, think of it this way. If the tyrant Nebuchadnezzar could be, as I believe, genuinely converted, so he writes incredible worship to Almighty God at the end of Daniel 4. And I do expect to see him in heaven. If a guy like that who's running the world can be converted, God can convert anyone. And so we pray because God desires all men to be saved. Just because they are leading or leaders, a prime minister, a dictator, whatever, doesn't mean that they can't be converted. But there are limits, aren't there, to our obedience. There should be limits. When government commands something contrary to the word of God, we need to resist. For example, in the book of Acts, uh, the governing officials there, the Jewish government, the Sanhedrin, forbid Peter and John from preaching the gospel. We forbid you from speaking the name of Jesus anymore. Well, just shortly before that, Jesus had given the Great Commission right before he ascended to heaven, preached the gospel in all the world. So who are you going to listen to? Well, they knew who they were going to listen to. They said, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. But a Christian should still do this disobedience with a respectful attitude. I think we see this with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and also Daniel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace were respectful to Nebuchadnezzar still. How do I know that? Well, one of my favorite little moments in government history. I mean, it's important, don't you think, for governments to make laws that are enforceable. That's why I say no government can ever make a law against coveting, because they can't enforce it. Well, here's the most unenforceable command ever. They're in the fiery furnace, miraculously sustained by the hand of God, and Nebuchadnezzar shouts, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out. Suppose they said, come and get us. Right? What's he going to do? His soldiers burned to death throwing them in there. Unenforceable. But that wasn't their attitude. There was nothing immoral about the command to come out. There was something immoral about the command to bow down and worship an idol. You've got to distinguish. Same thing with, with um, Daniel in Daniel 6. It was immoral to be commanded not to pray to any god except the emperor. Daniel disobeyed it. He continued to pray to God, and they threw him in the lion's den. But he was still respectful to the emperor. Now, Romans 13 presents government as a servant of God. Revelation 13 presents government in its final state as a direct servant of Satan. No doubt about it, the dragon is Satan, and he is behind the beast 
from the sea, who is the Antichrist. It's one thing to be demon-possessed. What is it like to be Satan-possessed? And I believe that is the final form of human government on earth. And in that final form, during the reign of Antichrist, which is that one-world government that I believe is coming, all the nations of the earth are going to bow down to this one individual. It's the final form of human government. One of the indicators of submission to that wicked ruler will be the mark of the beast. And it's very plain that if you receive it, you'll spend eternity in hell, Revelation 14. So none of the elect, Jesus said, will be deceived, and none of the elect will receive the mark of the beast. That's overt rebellion against the world government. All right, so that's render to Caesar. What must we render to God? Well, I'm going to kind of table a full discussion of this to three sermons I'm going to preach on the first and greatest commandment. But here's what you owe God. You owe it to him to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to show your love by your total, absolute obedience to him. That's what you owe him. You owe him your worship. You owe him your heart. You owe him everything. As a matter of fact, you're you're rendering to Caesar as a subset of what you owe to God. You do it because God's told you to do it. Everything, everything you give to God. Governing officials need to be careful and not seek to be gods themselves. It's always that temptation, and that's what's going to happen with the Antichrist. He's going to want to be, he's going to demand to be worshipped. And this is that tendency where, where, where governing officials get filled with themselves and filled with ego, and they seek to be worshipped. That is not something we render to Caesar. That's something we give to God alone. Worship. Render means to give back as rightful due. Ascribe to the Lord, Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty men. Ascribe to the Lord the glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. That's what you owe him. Give him the glory that his name deserves. And then realize, if render means give back, everything in the universe is going back to God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Everything is getting rendered back to God ultimately. So therefore, everything that we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it for the glory of God. And we Christians can look forward to a perfect government yet to come. Amen? We're looking ahead to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the eternal kingdom of Christ, described in many places, but one of my favorite is this, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Think about that. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over its kingdom, establishing and upholding it from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Well, that was going to be the end of the sermon until this morning. Then I wrote this extra page, and I want to read it to you. I believe many Christians living in America today are intensely disappointed with what's happening with our government. And I share your disappointment. Many Christians have expectations of government that I am worried about, frankly. I'm concerned about it. Those expectations are not being realized. And as they look ahead, they wonder, how can we get those expectations realized? 
So I wanted to just say a few things about the difference between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Christ. There's just a significant difference between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Christ. How do they advance? How do the kingdoms of this world advance, and how does the kingdom of Christ advance? How are they governed? How, is the ki- how do the kingdoms of this world, how are they governed? And how is the kingdom of Christ governed? I mean right now. And how do they handle opposition? How do they handle enemies? How do they handle opponents? With the kingdoms of this world, it is the compulsion of the sword. You oppose, you die, ultimately. Whether you're a criminal or if you're taking a, a sword against the government or an opposing an enemy army, it's the sword, the compulsion of the sword. With the kingdom of Christ, it's the compulsion of truth and love. That's what we do with our enemies. We love them and we give them the truth. Therefore, it is force, physical force even, compulsion by force on the one side versus persuasion and love on the other. Or if I could keep it simple, the kingdoms of this world advance, get larger by killing, and the kingdom of Christ gets larger by its subjects dying. It's very different. Therefore, there are two verses in my mind. John 18, 36, Jesus said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight for me. Think about that. That's what it means to have a kingdom of this world. My servants would take up the sword and fight for me. But Jesus said earlier in John 12, 24, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. So that's why I say the kingdom of this world, kingdoms of this world advance by killing, and the kingdom of Christ advances by us being willing to die. Maybe not physically, but you die to yourself. You die to what's best for you. You share the gospel. You're willing to serve. And in some cases, some martyrs actually did lay down their lives. The blood of martyrs was seed for the church. They were willing to die for Christ. And so therefore, I go back to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark as I conclude. Mark 1.15, Jesus said when he began his preaching ministry, the time is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. That's, what, that's how we enter the kingdom of Christ, by repenting of our sins and believing the good news that God sent his son to die for us under the wrath of Caesar, under the wrath of the Sanhedrin, to die for us that we might have eternal life. So repent and believe the good news, enter the kingdom, live that life for his glory. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus' amazing statement here. I don't think we've even begun to scratch the surface of what it means to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But I pray, O oh Lord, that you would just teach us, O oh Lord, help us to, to understand government biblically, help us to fulfill our duties properly, help us to look ultimately to the kingdom of Christ while we do not shrink back from influence, salt and light, influencing policies as we're able God, give us wisdom for the facing of this hour. We thank you for the gospel. Thank you that Jesus Christ offers full forgiveness of sins by his death and his resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. 
Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.